0: turn to the book of philippians chapter 4 you're going to you're going to groan potentially that this may not be the last message in our philippians series but it might also be i haven't yet decided um the we're going to do verses 10 to 20 of philippians uh, chapter 4 and um I'm calling it joy and contentment. You could call this joy and poverty. You could call this uh, joy and difficulty. But we'll call it joy and contentment. And the reason uh, for that is that contentment is the main theme uh, in this passage. Contentment and God's provision. And uh, if you spend any length of time talking to people, if you spend any length of time really actually examining your own thoughts and what's on your own heart, you'll realize that a lot of us are discontent. We're not in a place of contentment. Does that make sense? We're not in a place of deep satisfaction within ourselves. There's a deep within us. And usually we have the belief that if we just had a little bit more of what we have, or we just had something else in our life, we would be content. Who's felt that way? Anyone? Good. Most of your hand's going up. You felt discontent. I I vary from content to discontent on a daily basis. And we we think, if I just had a, a different job... I'd be content. If I just had a little bit more of these Apple products in my... (laughs) I'd be happy. As I said a few weeks ago, the iPhone 7 shattered that because you're like, it doesn't have a headphone jack. How can I be happy with this thing? Um, If I just had some different abilities, I would be content. If my spouse was a little bit more of this or a little bit more patient, I'd be happier. We laugh, but we've all said it. If the church was just a little bit more of this, then I'd be content. You might remember earlier this year I did a topical message on contentment and specifically looking at the issue of coveting the, breaking the Ten Commandment and Contentment. But don't tune out this morning. Let none of us tune out. I Really appreciated studying this passage here in Philippians 4 because we're coming at contentment from a very, very different angle. And it is a very, very important subject. God wants us to be content with what we have. And we're going to learn about contentment. This is the crazy thing. We're going to be learning about contentment from a man who's in jail. Think about that. We're learning about contentment from a man in jail talking to a church that's flat broke and struggling. Seems like an odd people to learn from and seems like seems like you'd be asking people that are in a good situation to talk about contentment. No, we're talking about a man who's in jail. We're talking about people who are struggling and they're exactly the people to learn about contentment from. So, Philippians... Chapter 4, verses 10 to 20. Let's read God's word uh, together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory for ever and ever. Amen. This is God's word uh, to us. What I want to do is look briefly at the historical context of what's happening. You can, you do a lot of wrong when you start applying before you know what's happening in a text. So we're going to look a little bit at what's happening in the historical context so we can, we can work out why Paul's writing this. And then we're going to pull seven things that we can learn about contentment uh, from this passage. Very briefly, the Philippian church had sponsored Paul As a missionary. they sponsored him so he could minister full time in Thessalonica. And now he's in jail. In Rome. Approximately 1,200 kilometers away. Okay? No airplanes. No Toyota Camrys. It's a long trip. Okay? And they sent a man called Epaphroditus with gifts to help him. Epaphroditus nearly dies. We read about that in chapter 3. But they send Epaphroditus with some money, maybe with some material things like a, a, a blanket. When you're in a Roman jail, they don't tend to look after you very well. Okay? They send a man to help Paul out. A little church sends help to another country. And he thanks them for their ongoing partnership. That's what he's saying here. And if you're reading verses uh, 10 through 14 and 15, you might get a little bit confused about what's happening. And you look at commentators over the years; they've really struggled with this passage because they seem to be wondering: Is is, is Paul ungrateful? Is like w- what what is happening here? It's not always easy to know. But very briefly, he's very grateful. He's very very thankful to them, and that's why. In verse 10 and verse 14, he says things like, It was kind of you to share my trouble. He's very, very thankful to these people. But then he says in verse 18, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. He's saying, I'm incredibly grateful for you people for giving me money. I was in Thessalonica, now while I'm in prison. I'm incredibly grateful for your help. I don't need any more. That's what he's saying. He's saying, he's trying his darnest not to appear ungrateful. That's why he keeps saying, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, I'm grateful, please stop. That's what he's doing. Paul is very careful not to use his apostolic authority, and not a lot of apostles on the earth at this time, to bleed churches dry. Can you imagine? This is, the, this is the big name in the church. If he said, give me half your money, most of the churches would have complied. He's in a place of real authority, and he is very, very careful not to bleed churches dry. So much so that he only seems to take money from churches where he's very, very confident that they are mature enough to be generous themselves. He doesn't demand X amount of money from churches. He doesn't want to bleed them dry. And so he's thankful that this church have helped him out. And it's especially important because this church are not doing well financially. That is an important thing to note. They're struggling. They're in an area where there's not a lot of money. If you you don't have to turn there. If you look at Second Corinthians chapter eight, you look at Second Corinthians chapter nine, you'll see that this Philippians church at the same time is struggling, struggling financially. Paul uses the words of them that they are in extreme poverty. Yet this church, in extreme poverty are still very generous. They're generous with their money, they're generous with their people, they're generous with their gifts and abilities. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so what Paul does in verse 18, and in verse 17 as well, is he theologically interprets their giving. He calls it a fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul borrows the language from Old Testament sacrifices in the temple. And he even borrows the language that is used in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, about the sacrifice of Christ. And he explains their giving in terms of those sacrifices. What's he saying? That because internally... They have been content because internally they have been very generous. Between, because internally they have been, they've chosen to be self-sacrificial. He says it has been pleasing to God. Your money, that cloak, you sending a to me, your supporting of my ministry in Thessalonica so I can plant the church there, has been an offering that is acceptable to God. It has been pleasing to God. This is in opposition to what we see in Second Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verse right about verse 2, where Paul is worried that the Corinthian church are hesitant to give money to help out the church in Jerusalem. And he's saying he's worried because they're not interested in being self-sacrificial. They're not wanting to help out the church in in Jerusalem. The church in Corinth have this attitude of, Paul wants us to give money to them? (sighs) I guess we have to. Here you go. That's their attitude. And Paul's saying, he's encouraging these Philippians and saying, I'm grateful. I'm grateful how sacrificial you are. It is pleasing to God. These people are a positive example that's why he says in verse 17, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The fact that these people, despite their poverty, are being very generous with their money towards mission, being very generous with their money towards church planting, being very generous with their money towards Paul who's in prison, is a great thing. And that shows that fruit is coming from their faith. As a pastor, and I know all the elders in this church are probably exactly the same way as me, there's one thing that we hate doing, and that's talking about money. You just don't want to do it. It's just very, very awkward. Especially when you're like me, you live on tithes and offerings, okay? God never commands a specific amount, He never does. In, in, the, in the New Testament. It is an offering. If you give 10%, that's wonderful. But he never commands a set amount. He says, the attitude of the heart is what matters. That we give from a cheerful heart, not like the Corinthian church under compulsion. Oh, I guess I have to. Here you go. A cheerful heart is what is is pleasing to God. And we can draw a principle out of this content hearts are generous content hearts are generous with money they're generous with their gifts they're generous with their time they're generous with people content hearts content churches are generous and it's not about the amount of money at the end of day at the end of the day this is a church mostly filled with content people and yet they're in poverty and that's okay. They give from the little they have and God is pleased with them. That is an encouraging example to us, is it not? It's encouraging because this generosity has flown forth from a content heart. So Paul's grateful to these people. And he's using a very nice principle in this letter. He starts off in Philippians chapter one, encouraging them and saying, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that you partnered with me. I'm thankful that the gospel's taken root in your church. And he says here in chapter four, I'm thankful for you. I'm grateful for everything that you've done. Thank you. And because he started this letter off on a positive note, and because he's ending it on a positive note, it's helpful because in the middle he does a little bit of rebuking. There's something nice there. You tell someone off, often it's good to buttress your comments with some positive things. Okay? That's what he is doing here. I'm grateful for you. You need to repent. I'm grateful for you. That's what Paul's doing. So, that makes sense. He's thankful for these people. Please stop giving me money. Please stop sending stuff. I got it. Okay? That's what he's saying. Seven things that we can learn about contentment from this passage. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. Firstly, in from verse 11, God wants his people to be content. When Paul's speaking about being content, he's bringing up a principle that Elsewhere in Scripture, God is wanting His people to be content. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Hebrews 13 5 says, Keep your life free from love of money. Love of money. Very important. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And lastly, second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul says of his own life, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for when I am weak, I am strong. God wants His people to be content, and we are content in Him and His providence. When we are discontent, our discontentment is tied to our lack of gratefulness for what God has given us. That makes complete sense, right? Right? we're not grateful for what God has provided for us, then we are discontent. Secondly, contentment needs to be learnt. We see that in verse 11 as well. I've learnt in whatever situation I am to be content. It's not like you become a Christian, you repent and believe the gospel, and then wham, bam, perfect contentment. Hallelujah, I've arrived. It's not not like that. Not like that at all. And that should be encouraging to us. Because Paul, he's in his 60s at this point, he's talking about how he's had to learn to be content. He had to learn it himself. That's important. Because it doesn't just happen instantly, it does require some effort on our part. But contentment needs to be learnt. And if we apply this back to last week's message, it requires us to think about true things and then seek to practice them. If contentment is tied to being grateful for God's providence to us, then it requires us to think about what God has provided for us. It requires effort. So contentment needs to be learnt. Thirdly, this one doesn't exactly come out of the text, but I'm going to use it anyway because it's, it's, it's there. Contentment is often easier to learn when you realize your lack of it. Does that make sense? When you realize that you do not have contentment, it's often easier to get it. It's important. Oftentimes when you have lots of money, when you have good friends around you, when your marriage is going great, when your job is awesome, when all those things are going well, you've just bought the latest phone, you've just got a new car, whatever it is that your heart wants to be, it tells you that you need to be content. When you have those things, it's often easier, it's often harder, sorry, to realize that you don't have true contentment, the true contentment that Christ brings. That you lack the real thing and that you're finding your contentment, your false contentment, in stuff. This is why Jesus says it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We've all heard that verse, right? And some people then say that there was a little wall, a little gate in Jerusalem called the eye of a needle and it was about this big and it was possible for a camel to get through the eye of the needle if it just got down that's not what he's saying okay just just throwing that out there a side point that's not what he's talking about there's no little gate in the wall of jerusalem that a camel could get through not true Eye of a needle a little needle that you use for sewing why is that though Why is it harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Because they don't realize their need. Wealth makes it, wealth and prosperity make it harder for us to realize our true need. It is far easier to find some sort of fake contentment and stuff And to realize that we don't have what our heart truly longs for. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. I've had enough conversations with people in this church to know. Maybe you're sitting here this morning. And you're saying, yes, John, I am deeply discontent with my life. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you're not a Christian regardless, I've got good news for you. Because you're more likely to seek real contentment when you realize that you don't have it. And that's what makes the what's called the, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, taken over so many churches. They say, if you come to Jesus and you believe enough, hard enough, and you pray hard enough, he'll give you lots of money. He'll give you lots of stuff. Your children won't get sick anymore. You'll be perfectly healthy, you'll be very wealthy, and you will be happy. What makes that health and wealth gospel, and so the latest statistics that came out this week was that approximately 37% of Christians in America believe that if you have enough faith in God, He will give you material possessions? 37% of Christians believe that their faith is tied to God giving them more stuff. Does God not provide? Absolutely, but God is not to be used as a vehicle for a new BMW. Never promised that. Jesus didn't have a house. Do we get that? The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, and yet we're saying, Jesus will give me that new car. Jesus will give me that new house. Jesus will protect me from cancer. Never has. Do we see why that false gospel is so dangerous? It's because it encourages you to find your contentment and your satisfaction and things that are not true. It encourages your heart in its natural place of wanting stuff. Oh, that car, I'll have that. Oh, that house. Sometimes I struggle to drive down the nice streets in Palmerston North because I drive past one of those big six-bedroom houses and be like, wouldn't life be great if I had one of those? It's fine to admire. It's another thing entirely to want it and to set your heart on it. The health and wealth gospel is dangerous because it gives us an avenue, another avenue for false contentment. So if you're discontent here this morning, that might actually be a very, very good thing because you're closer to finding true contentment When things are going poorly. Fourthly, contentment is not based on your circumstances. We'll pull this out of verses 11 to 13. I understand. You might be saying, didn't you just say it's easier to realize your lack of contentment when you have less stuff and when things are going poorly? When your circumstances are bad, it's easier to realize your lack of contentment? Absolutely. But this is important having less stuff, being in poverty alone is not going to give you contentment. Because contentment is not actually truly tied to your circumstances. Paul says in verse 12, In any and every circumstance I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Any and every circumstance. Contentment is not based on having a lot, and contentment is not based on having a little. It's not tied to your circumstances. Though, having a lot and being in a prosperous state will make it harder to realize your lack of contentment. How can I say this? Some people over the years have taken the view that if they just make themselves poor, if they remove all their possessions from their lives, they'll be able to find contentment. If they just live a minimalistic lifestyle, you've seen that on Facebook, people say I've decluttered my life and got rid of all sorts of things and they think that if they move into the woods and have a composting toilet and don't have true electricity, they'll be content maybe for a little while but this is the problem, the heart has not been changed the heart has not been changed there's uh, I love the story of Martin Luther who went and lived in a monastery living a very simple life thinking that he could find contentment there You know what happens to the monk living in the monastery at dinner time? Brother Martin is sitting there eating his spaghetti and meatballs. I don't know what they eat in monasteries, but anyway. He's sitting there eating his spaghetti and meatballs, and he's sitting next to Brother Theo over there, and he's eating his spaghetti and meatballs. And Brother Martin looks across and sees that he's got three meatballs, and you've only got two. In that moment, he's discontent. In that moment, he's saying, if I had what he had, I'd be happy. That's not fair. Because you can remove most of the stuff from your life, but if the heart is not being changed, you're still not going to be content. You're just going to be discontent with a little bit. Maybe that's you. and there's a there's a famous billionaire he asks the question, "How much money is enough?" He says, "Just a little bit more, always just a little bit more than what you have. Maybe you're here this morning and you you started a new job, and you're thinking to yourself, "When it started, this is great and then after a year or two all of a sudden you don't think it's that great anymore because you realize your boss is a jerk, your co-workers don't like you. And no one knows how to run things properly around here except for you. It's funny how that always happens, huh? Maybe in your marriage you're lying down, going to sleep at night after five years of marriage and you're going, I really thought this would be different that person had just been a little bit different, it would have been better. If I just married someone else, my life wouldn't be like it is now. Churches, all the time. I started a year ago this week. Maybe you thought it would be different. In fact, you probably do think it would have been different at this point in time. You see, your circumstances are not to be ignored. That's what, not what we're saying. And Paul doesn't agree with that either. Paul does not, throughout this letter, ignore physical and material discomfort. He doesn't. The main concern, however, is that Christians need to find their true contentment in the peace and power of God rather than in their circumstances, where the things are going abundantly well or where things are going really, really poorly. Contentment is not tied to circumstances. Fifthly, contentment comes through a person. Verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Shout out to any athlete who has this tattooed on their chest, who writes this on their athletic tape on their wrist before their rugby game. It's not talking about that. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can you imagine me? Okay, I'm a little bit OCD. Okay, just a little bit. Okay, I'm a stickler for making sure the Bible is interpreted well, and I lift weights. That is my crew. I like being around people that lift weights and compete in strength competitions. Do you know how many people quote this on Facebook all their time after they put a video saying... Praise God, I just got a new bench press personal best today. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I lose my mind because it's not talking about that. I've been a Christian longer than I've lifted weights. Jesus Christ has not increased my bench press for me. He just hasn't. He's, he's, he's kept me alive and allowed me to lift weights, totally. But there's... No command in Scripture saying that Jesus will help you run faster. There's no command in Scripture saying that Jesus will make you a better athlete. And I mean you just you just need to like take a survey, you go to a pastor's conference. There are not a lot of athletes around, okay? It's like the Gumby convention like, I'm so, uh, okay, they' just they're just' they're just what it is. Let me bring this serious though. Contentment comes through a person. I don't want this point to get missed. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What Paul is trying to say is that Jesus Christ is the person through whom contentment comes. Why? Because Jesus died to fulfill our greatest needs. He came into the human history... As a man, lowering himself. And Jesus says to us, I have lived for you. I have died for you. I rose again for you. I've forgiven your sin. I've reconciled you to God. I've become your older brother and you've been adopted into the family of God. So God is your father. I've done all of that for you. I've solved your greatest problem." The fact that you're an enemy of God. Find contentment in me. That's what Paul's saying. He's pointing us to Christ and says, I can do all things through him, Christ, who strengthens me. That's what he's saying. Contentment is found in a person. We are grateful for the providence of God to us through Jesus Christ, through the Son. God has provided for us, not million dollar homes, maybe he has for you, not great cars, maybe he has for you, not a wonderful job, but maybe he has for you, that's not the ultimate thing, He's provided a savior, the providence of God to us through Jesus embraced by our soul, that's how we find contentment, when your soul embraces Jesus, that's where you find it. Over and over and over again, we need to be reminded of what God has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And have our soul embrace that each morning, each Sunday, over and over. That is where contentment is found. We need to be reminded of it. We need to learn it. We need to tell others about it. One of the greatest things my wife does for me when I'm feeling down and depressed, which is often... It reminds me of what God has done for me in Jesus Christ. That is where contentment is found. Not on an easy week, which is something I tend to idolize. Not on a lack of drama. Not on everything going well in my life. Not on a lot of money in my bank account. In Christ. So contentment is found in a person. And sixth... Contentment has a theme song. Anyone have a theme song for themselves? Family theme song, something you like singing along to? Anything that sums up your life? No? You have a rugby team or a sports team, you have a theme song? Every, every uh, seventh form graduating class in high school has a theme song. They do that Time of Your Life song by Green Day. That's your theme song, okay? Contentment has a theme song. Verse nineteen. This verse is a song, a prayer, or a statement of fact. Whatever you really want it to be amongst those three. My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Maybe your translation says it a little bit better. Maybe the NIV puts it in an easier to sing language. But that's your theme song as a content Christian. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. These words exist. Paul puts them right at the end of the letter. To a church that's struggling. To people that are facing outside opposition. To people that don't have a lot of money. These words are intended to encourage them with the assurance that God has... And can and does provide all that believers need to enjoy a true contentment. How do you know that God will give you enough that you might be content? His word tells us that God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God is in the richest position in the universe. He created it. You are his child. He will give you all that you need to be content. And if you don't have it, you don't need it. Because he has not given it to you. So it's got a theme song. And lastly, we'll close with this. Contentment is grateful. Look at verse 20. It's like the song continues. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen if you read the book of Revelation, chapter 4, chapter 5, you see things like statements like this over and over again. It's what we'll be singing in glory as we behold Jesus Christ. Contentment is grateful. You see, when we're discontent, our focus is on ourselves. Our focus is on our circumstances, how it's not as good as we want it to be. Contentment manages to turn our eyes away from ourselves, upwards to God and thank Him for what He has provided for us. You can take a Christian who has learned contentment and you can put them in the worst possible circumstances. I can't imagine a Roman jail is a very fun place to be. With the threat of execution hanging over their neck and they're able to be grateful. That's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. Because they realize God has supplied all their needs. So, this morning, maybe you're discontent because you're not a Christian. Maybe you're discontent here this morning and you are a Christian. The remedy, the thing you need, is the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. You need good news. That's what discontent people need. They need good news. But the good news is not God will give you a better job. The good news is not God will give you a new house. The good news is that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ allows us to be forgiven of our sin, allows our covetous hearts that we have, our discontent hearts, to be forgiven and changed. We see the generosity of God in sending His Son to us, despite the fact that we've only provided our own sin. We see that. The good news that there is a Savior, that there is a Redeemer for us. When we set our heart upon Him and we're thankful for what God has given us in in His Son, we are able to be content. Forgiven of our discontentment and we're able to live content lives. And as I said, content people are able to be grateful in the worst possible circumstances. What is more loving Right now, for Paul to say, or for me to say right now as well, what's more loving? Is it more loving to say, God will give you everything you can possibly dream of? Or on the other hand, right here to say, yeah, your circumstances might be terrible, they might be good, but you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That is loving. That's the best possible thing that you can say to someone. This is a very countercultural text, is it not? Contentment is found not in a better relationship. Contentment is not found in more stuff. Contentment is not found in any of those things. Contentment is found in a person. His name is Jesus Christ. He died for you 2,000 years ago. He lives forever. Be content in him. That's a circumstance that doesn't change. And that is why it is the most helpful thing for us. Let's pray.